Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 296, and today's guest is Jacqueline Claudia, or JC for short, the CEO of SmarterX. The business of doing good, it is an area where companies can build a profitable organization while doing something that is socially responsible. Companies like Tom's and Patagonia are great examples. For JC, she had a successful career, but it lacked fulfillment, and she finally hit a breaking point where it was time for a change. From taking the entrepreneurial leap and building a responsibly farmed fish CPG company that reached distribution in over 4,000 stores and landing Leonardo DiCaprio as an investor, to what she is now doing as CEO of SmarterX, her career has aligned with her beliefs and values, all while working to create a more sustainable world. SmarterX is in the business of using data for good through its product intelligence platform, which is leveraged by retailers and brands to gain product insights and identify how to best handle consumer products across the supply chain to remain compliant, avoid fines, and reduce their environmental impact. The company has been recognized by Fast Company on two very impressive lists, that being world-changing ideas and most innovative companies. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep conversation on the importance of finding personal fulfillment in one's career, JC's background story in terms of growing up in rural Pennsylvania and the foundational years of her career, the full story of Love the Wild, from scaling up to ultimately making the hard decision to exit the business, all the details about SmarterX in terms of how its platform and business model works, plus its impact on the planet, the positive use of AI in the clean tech and sustainability industry, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. I don't know if you've heard, but the team at VentureFizz has launched a spinoff website called Just Product Management Jobs. We are combining laser-focused job postings for product managers with high-value blog content that is written by expert contributors covering topics around career advice and the latest trends and best practices in the product management industry. So if you are a PM looking for a new opportunity or if you're hiring product managers, go to justproductmanagementjobs.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with JC. JC, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Keith. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you because we've got uh, a lot to talk about. There's a lot of uh, you know entrepreneurial initiatives that you've been involved in, as well as what you're currently up to with Smarter X. So we're going to talk about all that. But to kick things off, I did want to talk about... Um, you know, fulfillment in one's career. So, um, you know, I watched a video for you as I was preparing for this podcast where it seemed like at some point in your career, you had this breaking point where you were like, I don't know if what I'm doing is providing that that meaning anymore and it's not really fulfilling. So then you ended up pursuing something that was more passionate of what you found to be fulfilling. So I think that's helpful for people to understand like, trying to build that into your career so that you you have that purpose. Yeah. Uh, I think you're talking about my breaking point, <laughs> which was um, <laughs> in the middle of like really, really stupid early in the morning in an airport hotel somewhere in New Jersey. I was doing consulting work at the time and um, I was doing projects that, you know, frankly, were a little bit against kind of my core values and my beliefs. And though I'm very, very good at what I do, it was like, is this shit worth getting on an airplane and leaving my kids and my husband and my pets at home, like to go and do work that I wasn't sure was really in the interest of goodness, but frankly, it didn't, it didn't feel like right for me. Um, and I, I had my moment when I realized that I, uh, 
I had conditioned my hair with like lotion and my <laughs> hair was just like a greasy mess because I was I've so actually done that too. <laughs> yeah. And I had no time to like fix it. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. I've snapped. I'm, you know, I went home, I resigned and um, decided to, to start a venture that I thought really was going to make the kind of difference that I thought the world, the world needed. And boy, that was an exciting ride. Yeah. So what advice would you give to people that are trying to figure that out where it's like, man, I, I have this job. It probably pays me well, but man, it's not really that what I want to do type of thing. You know, not that everyone has to go change the world, but just, you know, have that meaning and purpose when you get up in the morning, you know, excited to do what you do. Yeah. I mean, I think that the toughest thing, and like, I learned this the hard way, at, at least for me, is that that there's a balance point in the middle, right? Like you definitely should not be doing things that you feel um, are inauthentic to yourself or against your core values, right? Like that, that's never going to feel good. But if you swing so hard the other direction, which I did, where your entire identity, your emotional happiness, everything is tied up in this venture that you're building or this work that you're doing, it can be really, 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 really hard to separate, um, which, you know, you're going to have to do at some point because not all ventures work. And sometimes you need to do things for other parts of your life and let that kind of sit on the back burner a little bit. And it's tough to do that if you're really emotionally wrapped up in it. So, I mean, at least for me, I'm I'm really happy where I am, which is I'm working on a business that I think is going to make a difference in the world, but I have a healthy separation of where the business starts and ends and where I am. Um, and I think that makes me a better leader for that kind of, for that kind of, yeah, to have that separation. Yeah. Balance so, is definitely key. Aim for something that feels good that you believe in, but not don't drink the Kool-Aid so hard that you've got like a ring around your face. Like that's not a good look. Got it. All right. Well, we're going to talk about that business in a moment, but before we get into that, let's talk about your background story. So where'd you grow up or what were you like as a child? <laughs> okay. I I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. I am the proverbial coal miner's daughter. Um, I was uh, a challenging child, as you might expect. Um, I think I got a U in deportment every year uh, because I did not respect authority. <laughs> um <laughs> I, I, you know, curious. I was nerdy. Nerdy is all get out. Um, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist when I grew up. So I always had a ton of fish tanks. And so my dorm room smelled bad. Apologies, Margie. Um, but uh, just, you at know, if, if, oh, yeah. If I was interested fish in tanks it. At I, Penn. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought I was going to breed betas at that point. I think it was, um, it's interesting. And then I had turtles. So, yeah. but you so, studied economics, yeah. right? At Penn? Yeah. I mean, in my, you know, my math on that equation was, you know, I grew up a coal miner's daughter, um, coal mine shut down. Everyone around me, including my family was really poor um, and it was really tough and I didn't want to be poor. And so if you kind of watch the movies, the people who um, are not poor are, you know, the Wall Street financiers and, you know, these like high flying corporate executives. And so, you know, I decided that I wanted to go to Wharton and, you know, somehow I managed to get accepted there and, and that's where I went. And it was, uh, it was hugely eye-opening for me. There was a whole world out there that I'd never seen before. I mean, in this little town that I grew up in, you know, it was just, you know, 
white Catholics and people, you know, worked at the jail or they worked at the school or they worked at the hospital or they were unemployed because they used to work in the coal mines. And that was it. That's the entire frame of reference for like me as a kid. So to go and, um, you know, learn about all of these different paths that are out there and different cultures and art was just fantastic. All right. So how'd you get your career started after you graduated? Uh, well, I, you know, I have the transcript of a typical entrepreneur, so completely packed full of A's and C's, right? So the way that you did jobs, uh, job searches back in when I was an undergrad was you submitted your resumes. There was the physical slots where you dropped resumes in and the companies that came on campus to do recruiting, they would screen the resumes and they would pick like, you know, 10 resumes that they wanted to interview. But in order to do that, they also had to leave two slots open for bids, Right. And I was the king of winning bids. So I never got pre-selected for anything because I didn't look as great on paper as some of my classmates, but I would always win the bid slots. I had really good like auction strategy on this and um, was pretty good at interviewing and ended up with like 13 job offers coming out of undergrad, um, including kind of all of the big banks, because I guess at the end of the day, after talking to 10 finance people, someone who could talk to them about you know, art history and fish was interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I uh, decided to go into consulting because I love to kind of solve challenges. And I was, um, you know, the people that I met through that process were just so interesting. Like they had done like really interesting things. They were really good people. Um, I love the focus on, you know, getting to spend a portion of your time working on nonprofit projects uh, pro bono to give back. And so um, that really helped me build a skill set in strategy and also just fundamentals, like how do you manage data? How do you find insights? How do you drive to conclusions? How do you bring stakeholders together um, in order to um, impact a decision or a change that you want to see happen? So what was next in your career after more of the consulting route? Uh, I did a few flavors of consulting. Um, I, you know, kept getting pulled to different jobs by, you know, managers or partners that I would work with. They would leave and they would go somewhere else and I would, I would end up going with them. Right. So I went, you know, first to, to future brand uh, to help build the brand valuation practice there. I went with Larry Drury, who was uh, one of my managers at, at Mitchell Madison group. Um, really interesting, but you know, that was maybe when I had my first like psychotic break at work where I was like, oh my God, if I'm if I'm doing my job right, I'm just helping to sell more advertising. And that mm -hmm. didn't really feel right. And so, um, you know, it's in part of building methodology to try to help value kind of customer relationships. I started reading white papers that Phil Terry and Mark Hurst at the time um, from Creative Good were, were writing about building just really good customer experiences. And if you put the customer at the center of your business, then, you know, you rarely go wrong. And so I called them up to kind of talk to them about some of the research that they were doing. And they're like, you know, maybe, maybe you should be working with us instead. And I'm like, yeah, actually, I think you're right. So I went to work at, at Creative Good. Um, that was really awesome building customer experiences, marrying kind of the online and offline um, worlds for, for commerce. Like at that point, e-commerce was still relatively new, right? So figuring out how that worked um, when you've got brick and mortar in these online experiences. Um, and then the dot-com bubble burst. And at that point, I had already been accepted to grad school. And um, one of my clients at the time, Eastern Mountain Sports, asked me if I wanted to come and 
do a six month stint before grad school started to help them do a turnaround on that business and, you know, modernize it. It was on a catalog platform instead of a real e-commerce platform. So kind of turn around, around, put in a warehouse system to be able to fulfill from stores instead of um, from physical, one physical location. So said, yeah. And I moved from my apartment building in New York City up to uh, Hancock, New Hampshire, where the entire town had less people than my old building did. <laughs> um, that was that was fun. I remember I called ahead to get a P.O. box so I could get my mail and stuff forwarded. And when I got to Hancock, I went to the post office and I walk in and there's this guy there in like jean overhauls, flannel shirt, red beard, right? And he goes, you must be Jacqueline. I haven't seen you around these parts. Here's your key, sweetheart. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that was lucky. He's the postmaster general up in that area. But yeah, going from big area to, to really small area. So that was awesome. So we did that. Um Got to do a lot of fun things in that job too. Since I was one of the few women who worked there, I would always get drug on the weekends to test new women's specific gear. So I've done a lot of rock climbing to, to mm. test new shoes. Um, but here's a secret. They're like glued together when they're prototypes. And so you can only wear them for like two days before they start falling apart. Um, okay. <laughs> but that was fun. Then I went to grad school. Grad school at University of Virginia. Yeah. So what'd you do post MBA? Post-MBA, I did the leadership development rotation at uh, First Bank, which, you know, was acquired and became part of Chase. Um, and that was, in my mind, going to be a really fantastic experience to kind of see different departments of the bank and learn how all of them work. But um, apparently what happens is if you get there and you do a really good job in your first rotation, they don't let you rotate, like they try to keep you. And my very first rotation was in um, card services. And so I had another moment where I'm like, oh my God, if I'm doing my job right, I'm filling your mailbox full of junk mail and I'm getting you to rotate a balance on a credit card. Now those three things don't really feel very good to me. And so um, I left there to go and be the lead analyst for the emerging markets for James Hardy, uh, which was actually one of the first jobs that I had that I really, really loved you know a physical product kind of for the first time Wait, uh, like, like that's people. like hardy plank right like hardy like yeah hardy, hardy plank it's hardy my, backer it's, it's, yeah it's on my my house hardy like yeah. hardy board yeah okay a lot of good leadership lessons there too i mean one of the things like even though i was an executive um you know, I had to go through all the, the same training that the salespeople and the installers went through, right? So I could come and I could side your house or tile your bathroom for you if you wanted, right? Um, but it was awesome because it made you actually learn and know the products that you were dealing with. And, you know, it's because they didn't want you to do a ride along with folks and like show up on a job site and like have someone kind of look you up and down and you know, believe that you don't know anything about their business. If you could like maybe show them some tips on what saw blade they were supposed to use, then they might listen to you about like, Hey, you know, you should really be thinking about this pre-finished product because it's going to save you a lot of time and it's going to give you a better warranty to give to your customers. So interesting kind of way to learn how you, how you actually deal with building credibility with customers. All right. Yeah. So you then you had a couple other stops, decision strategies, international, yeah. Brand Colorado. And then like, ultimately, like what led you down the path of starting your own company? Well, my dad, 
So he was a coal miner. He broke his back in a cave-in. So he spent the first two years of my life in a body cast, right? And I just remember him telling me repeatedly, and for him it was very literal, but like, Jacqueline, don't you break your back for somebody else. Mm. You should be doing, you know, you should be doing something for you. And so I've always had that kind of ringing in the back of my head. And, you know, when I worked at Decision Strategies International DSI, which was acquired and became part of Hydric, um, I did a lot of innovation venture projects there. So helping companies evaluate IP portfolios that they had built for one reason or another and figuring out which IP they could sell, which IP they could repurpose for something else, and which IP just really did belong back there on the shelf. And so I saw a lot of technologies and a lot of IP, and that was the first time that I really learned about sustainable aquaculture. Um, at that time, one of my clients, Lockheed Martin, had done a joint venture through this program that I put together with Kona Blue, which was an open ocean farm out in Hawaii that grew kompachi. And, you know, when you see the data rolling in off of those, like, like tests and off the cages and you see, you know, the quality, you can taste the quality of the, of the, you know, protein that you're able to grow with minimal detectable environmental impact. Like your eyes start to like grow, like, oh my gosh, like here we are in a world where we've got a growing population. The way that we're producing protein for people to eat is devastating where, you know, we're plowing down rainforests, we're doing monocrops where, you know, it's just not good. Right. If we have the ability to do this at scale in a way that's actually good, you know, we should be doing this. And so that's, you know, I stayed on with that, you know, with that group as an advisor uh, because it just, you know, it was just something that got into my, got into my soul. I really, really loved it. Um, but one night, you know, kind of sitting around with folks that I met through that, you know, brilliant scientists, brilliant operators, and listening to them talk about kind of the challenges that they were having, which was here we are growing the very best fish in the world and no one's eating it. Mm. Why? Right. And, you know, I, I thought about it, you know, and back in Western Pennsylvania, where I grew up, we didn't eat a lot of fish. You know, if we ate it at all, it was on Fridays during Lent and like, you know, apologies to my mom, but it was gross. Like it was bad. Like mm -hmm. it tasted bad. Like, and my mom just, you know, it wasn't part of how she grew up. So there weren't like a lot of recipes. There wasn't a repertoire for it. Right. But if you walk around, you ask people, should you be eating more fish? Everyone will raise their hand and tell you, yeah, but people aren't actually doing it. So there's a big gap between what they know they should do and what they actually do. And so, you know, I thought if, if I built a company that like made these, you know, the best farmed fish in the world accessible to consumers in a non-intimidating way that we could maybe get people eating more of the right types of protein, which would have a really positive population health impact, but also a really positive environmental health impact. So that was, that was how Love the Wild was born. Okay. So how do you get a business like Love the Wild started, right? Like that's, I mean, this is, was this before like the Blue Apron started appearing? Cause this was like, a, it wasn't like mm -hmm. a ship to home because you were distributing through retailers, but it was, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much a meal kit and a, the frozen food aisle, right? Yeah, exactly. You're hired. How did I get it started? <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, how do you even get like, well, a huge, like recipes and you're dealing with food uh, and just it's it distribute, like how do you get stores to be like, yeah, you know, Wegmans or Whole Foods to say, yes, we're going to carry I your mean, product. 
you just do the work, right? Like I didn't realize how hard what I was trying to do was while I was doing it. Looking back, it's like, man, I should have just decided that granola was going to be the thing that saved the world because trying to figure out how to do it in in seafood was really, really hard. And it's like, it's like the little things that you don't think about, right? Like, like distribution is like distribution, your actual supply chain, your distribution costs, like that's the thing that makes or breaks small companies. Because mm. if you're, you know, if you don't have scale, you're paying more to do everything than someone who is at scale. But I would talk to folks and be like, hey, you're running frozen trucks. Can you fit like one more pallet on the back for me? And the answer would be like, no, because you have a major uh, allergen and I'm not putting your major allergen on the same truck as my bread, for example. Right. Uh, uh, and so like that was really tough. So, you know, we, we paid out the ass and like, honestly, that was, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, the company ultimately failed is that, you know, the margins just weren't there. So like product fundamentals, like business fundamentals, making sure that the numbers actually work is it's a big deal. It turns out, right? Like, like hope that you're going to reach scale where these things work um, is not an effective strategy. You need to be managing it um, right from the very beginning. But, you know, I, I was shameless. Like I, I called anyone that I thought could help me. I would show up at their office repeatedly until they saw me. There was a, there was a, you know, a co-packer that I wanted to work with that, you know, didn't want to work with us because we were small, because we were seafood, right? Um, I literally flew there and I sat in the parking lot for two days until the guy felt shamed enough to come out and talk to me. That um, is and amazing. Then, they agreed to, that. then we agreed to do business together, right? But like, <laughs> you, you just have to be, you just have to be relentless, right? Like, and curious, right? And ask everyone that you meet, like, who else should I be talking to? Who might be able to help me with this? Any ideas for that? And eventually you'll bump along and be able to get it together. Yeah, uh, and like it was a great concept because you had the sauce and it was like I, I read somewhere like one like how you ended up creating that heart. Like it was just like kind of happened. You're like, of course it was supposed it was to be accident. a heart, like a healthy. Yeah, yeah, it was an accident, right? So, yeah. I mean, I, I have an ice maker in my fridge at home, right? But I, you know, and I had a gallon of sauce that we made that I was trying to take to a potential investor to kind of get them to understand the concept. I'm like, I don't want to roll in with like a jug of sauce. It would be great if I just had some like cubes worth of it. So I dug through the through the cupboard and the only ice cube tray I had was left over from one of my daughter's birthday party that made heart-shaped cubes. And I'm like, fuck it. Okay. So I put the sauce in there. I froze it in the heart-shaped cubes. Mm. I took a baggie mm. of the heart-shaped cubes. And, you know, the investor's like, oh my God, this is brilliant. brilliant. It suddenly s- signals heart healthy. And I'm like, yeah, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> no duh. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's adorable. It makes it feel very friendly. and Like you're loving yourself and your family. And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so we decided to stay with the hearts. Okay. But it was, a, it was fun. Um, we would do demos in stores and, you know, people would call our frozen fish adorable. And I'm like, okay, well now you actually have to buy it because you think it's adorable. And they're like, okay, you're right. So. All right. So you talked about uh, meeting with an investor. So you did raise capital. And uh, one of your investors Mm -hmm. is a very well-known individual, Leonardo DiCaprio. So how did you Mm -hmm. secure? um, I know he's very involved in, uh, you know, clean tech and earth sustainability. Like uh, he has a documentary about, so he's very passionate about uh, things of this nature, but how did you get someone like 
um, you know, this Hollywood A-lister involved? Well, just networking to try to find kind of the right people. Um, you know, fortunately, what we were doing is really kind of close to what what he cares about, like very passionate ocean activist. And, you know, what Love the Wild stood for was responsibly farmed fish, which a lot of folks kind of at first will kind of scratch their chin and be like, hmm, if you like the oceans, like, why are we talking about farmed fish? And the reality of it is um, it's it's a much cleaner production system than any other animal protein production we have. And we have a lot of areas that have been overfished um, to the point of decimation where you bring responsible aquaculture back and you start layering in like mussel culture and seaweed culture and, you know, aquaculture for, for fish on top of it. You can not only restore food chains, but you can restore economies in local areas. And that's something that, you know, he was very curious about and passionate about. And, and frankly, the food speaks for itself, right? So um, it was easy to, to kind of get him on board because it was so aligned with the values of what he stood for. And it was, I think, you know, one step to the left or maybe two and a half steps to the left, I think of what people would expect him to be interested in or investing in. And so that, that made it, um, that made it more newsworthy than, you know, if it were something like, you know, much more mainstream. And so I think that that, that has some appeal too. I mean, me building a, a consumer brand, having someone like Leonardo DiCaprio um, endorse what we were doing, kind of the idea behind it and the products behind it was one of the most powerful things we could do to kind of get people to take a, a second look. You know, like, like you do see it's, it's become more of more prevalent now where uh, athletes and celebrities are investing in companies. And uh, but, you know, Leonardo was involved in companies a lot earlier. So what type of role would an individual play like himself? Was he like, you know, involved in you know quarterly catch up calls? Was he doing social media, like just promoting the product? Like, like how involved was he? Um, I th think for him, it was probably more involvement than, than what you would typically see. So he became part of our advisory board so we could, you know, ask him questions or ask for, you know, introductions to other people or places that would, you know, take his call and maybe not mine. Um, you know, he would post on social about us, but it was really important to me in the social that it wasn't just kind of shilling for my products, but really raising awareness around ocean health issues and the role that sustainable aquaculture can play in that. Because for me, you know, I started Love the Wild with a mission to kind of de-demonize really great farmed fish. And it's important that that's what's accomplished. If Love the Wild became a very successful brand in the process, then that's a win. But, you know, I wasn't delusional enough to believe that, you know, people were going to go, you know, twice a week, every week for the rest of their lives and buy something that said Love the Wild on it. Like, and, like that's an unrealistic expectation. And, and it's also a fail, right? Like, if we want to be actually changing the way the industry works and changing consumer perception, we need to be inviting in a lot of other companies who have kind of the same mission, who have similar products so that consumers have enough choice that it can actually become a regular part of what they do. So to have him raising the profile of responsible aquaculture was super important. All right. Well, as I mentioned, you did get retail distribution to somewhere in the neighborhood of over 4,000 stores with you know major retailers. Mm -hmm. um, this is you know five or six years of your blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, at what point do you get to the you, you, another breaking point of like this isn't working out and actually stopping? 
building what you've been building? Because I think that's really hard for entrepreneurs to do that. Yeah. Um, for me, we got to that point when we landed a few very major retail contracts and we were looking at what we needed to invest in production and then all of the other things that like, you know, most consumers don't know about, like your slotting fees and your trade budgets and all of those things in order to support those launches. We would realistically have needed to raise like another $20 million. Um, and at this point, we had only raised, you know, close to seven or 10, right? And I took a hard look at the business, uh, you know, modeled out what it would look like if we brought that money in, what it looked like if we had like normal velocities at those stores um, and essentially decided that it was good money after bad, right? Like we weren't going to get there from a margin perspective to, to make this a profitable business, right? And so, you know, at some point you have to sit back and say, you know, why did I start this company? What did I want to accomplish? And kind of take a look at that, kind of that, that scoreboard. And, you know, I was tense across kind of eight of the 10 metrics that I set out for myself around like impact and mission and awareness and product quality and, you know, changing fundamentally the way the industry operates from a traceability perspective. The things that like weren't working were the actual, the financial viability of the business. And so, you know, I'm a person that, um, you know, I'm a straight shooter. I'm an honest person. Like I could not go to investors and be like, yeah, you know what? You should put $20 million in this business right now. That's a good bet, right? Like, cause it just wasn't. Um, and so I thought the better thing to do would be to, you know, elegantly wind it down, put it in a good home, give it a chance for kind of a, a second life. We looked at, you know, changing, pivoting it into more of a distribution company in Europe where consumers were more willing to pay, um, what sustainable seafood costs, right? Because my business model was fundamentally fucked because it's buying the best sustainable aquaculture there is out there. And it's not cheap, right? And trying to put normal margins on it and put it in a grocery store. And for some reason, consumers will pay more for a bottle of kombucha than they will for their center of the plate protein, right? Even though it's like this, uh -huh. this little like, you know, mind, like I couldn't change that, right? So, so the only thing that I could change is can we take the concept and put it somewhere where people actually do care and, you know, are willing to pay for the things that match their values. And then COVID hit and that was kind of, um, that was the end of that. That's a good point. Yeah. The kombucha, I just laughed. I was just like, yeah, oh my God, I got kombucha. And there's all these like different drinks that I see in the aisles now where I'm like, they're so expensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like but the margins center, are probably out through the roof. My center of the plate entree was $6.99 at Whole Foods. And it was the cleanest protein that you could get from a production perspective. Mm -hmm. It delivered a nutritional package for you as a, as a, as a consumer of it, that was literally unmatched from like just all of the nutrients that were in it. And yet people were like, oh, $6.99, that's too much. But I'll take that $9 kombucha, thanks. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, okay. Totally. Like you're hopeless. <laughs> so, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about what you're up to now, Smarter X. So um, I guess let's talk about the business. Uh, mm -hmm. Like what does the company do and how did you get involved? Yeah. So if we're going chronologically, right? Like I met the company through the Unreasonable Impact um, community. So I was in the same cohort as the founder of Smarter X. And I was at that point grappling with that hard decision we just talked about, which was, is it time to basically, you know, do something different with Love the Wild or not, right? 
Um, and, you know, stayed in touch with my cohort. We actually had our own little kind of YPO style group where we met weekly for, you know, years afterwards and talking to them about this decision. And the founder of at that time, Smarter Sorting was like, please come help me. Like I have brilliant data scientists. I've got really talented young engineers. I've got a really good patent portfolio, but I don't have anyone that speaks consumer and I don't have anyone that speaks retailer. And I'm like, well, guess what? That's my language. I can do that. Right. So I was looking at, you know, a whole bunch of different um, things in front of me. Like I could do private equity. I was offered a few turnaround CEO roles, like, you know, just lots of random things. And you know, we just kept talking about it and I'm like, all right, let me see how this actually works because I'm not going to come and, you know, help with something that's, you know, smoke and mirrors. Like, is this actually efficacious? What does it actually do? Um, and it turns out it was great. And I'm like, okay. And I don't have to talk to the board and I don't have to talk to investors. I can just do like, I can just do the retail and consumer thing. And he's like, yes. I'm like, okay, I'm in. So I came into the business. Um, you know, what we the founding story of SmarterX uh, was literally born in the dump, right? Like, so I make a joke where like the world's most sophisticated trash collectors, right? Um, but the the purpose behind the company was to keep usable products out of the trash and to, to, to try to divert as much as possible into reuse um, or recycling, right? So let's, let's stop putting things in trash that don't belong in trash. So it started at the municipal hazardous waste centers. Um, you know, this is before my time at the company, but one of the things that was discovered at the at the munis was that you know most of the products that were ending up there that were actually resellable were coming from retailers. We're like, well, what the fuck, right? Like, why are these good products from retail ending up like in the trash? Like cases of products, right? Good products. Um, you know, so we went upstream into retail, into Costco, which is our, our first customer of that kind. And we had our aha moment. It's like, you know, this stuff is you know, highly regulated, even though people don't think about it that way. Like, you know what one of the most toxic products in the world is, according to the state of California? Baby formula. I, was, I, was, I, I cheated because I listened to one of your bad. links. I knew. Yeah. Or your, it's on yeah. your website, actually, I think. So, yeah. yeah. So baby formula is you know, the most, one of the most toxic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, according to the state of California, if you, if you look at how it's handled regulatory, you know, so like most people are like, oh, it's baby formula. If you did it to babies, it's not hazardous waste. Well, yeah, yeah, it is, right? Um, so in order to be conservative, if you don't actually know what to do, the fines are so daunting that people were just, you know, you know what, I'm just going to treat it as hazardous waste because I don't know, and then I'm safe, right? But that's actually a really, really bad decision because those are good products that could have you know, been reused or something else could have done with it. And if you're over-classifying things and treating it as hazardous waste, they go through a much more environmentally disastrous like disposal process. They get incinerated, they get trucked around. Um, you know, Overclassifying waste is a really bad problem. It's expensive for the retailers, but you know it's just bad. So what our company does is it evaluates products. We take a look at all the physical and chemical attributes about a product, and we run the math, we run the equations to figure out exactly what it is. And because of what it is, how it needs to be handled through the supply chain. So as it's stored, like as it's moved on trucks, right? Like, does it have to be fully classified, right? Because if it does, um, and you know, you know, it, you can't go across a bridge or through a tunnel with something that's like a, a fully classified product. And so, if you think about, if you try to move something from A to B and you can't cross a bridge or a tunnel, what happens, right? 
your route starts to look like this. It gets really long and windy, which is more miles, which is more carbon footprint, which is more time, right? Mm -hmm. um, if something is not, doesn't have to be fully classified, then it can go straight shot, which is, you know, makes everything a lot better, right? Then you get to storage, right? Like, how do you need to store it? Does it need, you know, additional fire suppression? Lots of different decisions, or is it so hazardous that it can actually be stored in a warehouse and needs to go directly to the stores? which, you know, putting my CPG hat back on is the most expensive distribution model. When I have to send products to thousands of stores, it costs me more than if I have to send a whole bunch of product to one location, right? So you start to add a lot of cost to the supply chain in that way. And then we get to end of life. So is this hazardous waste? Can it be reused? Can this be, you know, sent to a food bank? People are like, well, what do you do? How do you donate hazardous waste? Well, guess what else is hazardous waste? Bleach, right? But any food bank out there will gladly take as much bleach as you can give them because they use it to sanitize surfaces and to sanitize, you know, um, cooking implements, right? Um, so there are lots of ways and places uh, people who can use products um, for their best, highest purposes. And so we try to divert as much as possible into um, into those non-waste categories. And in some retailers, we're able to divert as much as 93% of the stuff that used to be considered trash into recycling or reuse or donations. So it, it's something that we're really proud of. And we can do this because of the data set that we've accumulated. So that's kind of that next pivot of how the company kind of got to be kind of where it was, is-ish, is assembling a data set on products and using that data to figure out what they were and what, how they needed to be handled because of what they were. Now we're starting to be more proactive. Now we can kind of predict things about products. So we can anticipate, you know, how things would be handled from a regulatory perspective way back in the formulation phase, right? So, you know, if you were making something and I told you, you know what, You've got an ingredient in there at 2%, but if you drop that down to 1.5, this would not be considered hazardous. Would you would you drop it down to 1.5 if it didn't fundamentally change the performance of the product? Right. right? Yeah, no brainer. So we're making we're making it information like that available to folks at the beginning of life. We're also able to try to, you know, we're able to you know, anticipate ways that products can be used using the data about them that, you know, aren't, are non-obvious, right? Like one of, one of my favorite stories was back at the beginning of COVID, right? When, you know, products didn't say kills COVID right on the front of it because it wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the EPA re released a list of ingredients and concentrations, which were proven to kill COVID. And so how are consumers supposed to like solve this, right? Were they supposed to like roll into a store with a big magnifying glass and like a handy pocket sheet of like EPA chemicals and try to match it up on like on the back? No, right? But because we actually knew everything that was in the products and the concentration ranges that were in it, we were able to identify products that would kill COVID even if they didn't have it on the front of their label. And some of these things like saved the day. Like we found out that like Home Depot house wash was actually the same as bleach and mm. that hospitals were able to use that to clean ORs and keep them open because mm. they weren't able to get enough stuff that was, was labeled as disinfectant. And so, you know, being able to understand what's in products and how they can be used is also really powerful. But my biggest goal, you know, with this company is to, you know, because we know how things are handled across the supply chain, because we know what the different costs are associated with it, depending on how it's regulated, we can understand and price actually externalities onto products. And I'm hoping that as our data set grows, we can reach a place where we've got, you know, really clean, non-toxic natural products are actually the cheapest ones in the market 
because they're better for humans. They're better for public health. They're better for environmental health. And the ones that are today cheaper, but they're actually nasty, toxic little messes. Those are the ones that you pay $10 for, right? So that we can start using the economics to incentivize like the behavior that we need to see for people and for the world. So that's what, that's what got me hooked at SmartRx. What's really cool idea. And obviously the it's highly defensible with the the data set that you have. Mm -hmm. So who is the end customer? And maybe it's all the above, Keith. It's, you know, is it the product companies that are trying to figure out, is this, you know, the right mix of chemicals and what are my issues that I'm going to deal with? Is it the retailers that are trying to, you know, properly dispose of these products? Like, like who's the end customer? Is it all the above? It's all the above, Keith. You nailed it. Uh, Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, our route to market today, you know, lessons learned and being an entrepreneur um, is pretty elegant in that we offer these services for retailers um, that solve a lot of really important problems that they have, right? They need to understand how to handle things through their supply chain. They never want to show up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about some hundreds of million dollar fine they got for handling something inappropriately. Where their insurance policy for that, we make sure that the products are being handled appropriately, right? Um, and in exchange, they require their suppliers of these products to register those products with SmarterX. Um, and they do that for an annual subscription fee, which gives us the data and allows us to evaluate them. Um, and you know, they have to sign an attestation that the information that they're providing us about the products is correct, which allows kind of this whole this whole system to work. So today we service both the retail and the and the the supplier um, environment, but you know, as we kind of move into maturity as a company, uh, consumers are going to be a bigger part of what we do. Very, very cool. And and the impact you have an impact section of your website, it's it's like amazing. Yeah, and it, and we're just getting started, right? Like, so we've got, you know, we have data about products, we know how they're handled, but like, you know. That's kind of useless when it comes down to like someone like my 19-year-old daughter working in the back of a store and she's got, you know, a product and she needs to figure out what to do with it. We have a back of store system we call our boss, which actually takes this data and makes it usable for folks across the retail enterprise. So, you know, that particular system is fully deployed at Wegmans, you know, it's half deployed at Costco. It's, you know, other retailers that we work with are deploying are deploying it as we speak. But that system allows you to kind of scan the product and it tells you instantly where that product needs to go. Does this need to go into donation, diversion, or if it is hazardous waste, which specific type of hazardous waste is it? Is it an aerosol? Is it a combustible? Is it an erosive, right? So, you know, understanding, you know, what that is, and then it tracks the decision that was made. So all of a sudden, you know, retailers aren't making mistakes with their with their trash and they're able to track exactly what happened to every item leaving the back of the store. So they've got, you know, inventories of this is exactly how much product was donated to who and when and how much it weighed. They know exactly what's in those hazardous waste bins so that they can have, you know, waste pickups only when they're needed and not kind of on the schedule, which again, you know, improves the environmental impact. Because if you're sending a truck to pick up hazardous waste and there's nothing in the bin, then you just send a truck for no reason. And that's bad, right? So using that system, which is, you know, just starting uh, to be deployed, we've diverted, you know, over 10 million pounds of waste. Um, You know, we've, in terms of the things that are actually hazardous waste, 2.5 million pounds of it were able to be safely treated. So I'm super proud of that. And millions of meals we've been able to donate through a partnership with Feeding America, 
um, in our Meal Connect API with them that makes sure that donated food doesn't go to waste. Really, really big advancements for this no waste world. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's great business and obviously has incredible meaning too, which is, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation of, you know, doing something that's meaningful and the, making the world a better place. What's the current stage of the business as far as like, you know, capital raise, number of employees, you recently rebranded. So there's been a lot mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. So let's see, let's take them one by one. We have 63 employees today. We've been holding steady there for a while. We'll probably start growing again um, later this year. We've raised a little over $50 million. Um, you know, a lot of that was deployed to, you know, build our IP portfolio, kind of our base underlying systems that allow us to do all of these cool things that we're doing now. And how'd you decide on the rebrand? Well, Smarter Sorting um, was the name of the company. Actually, the name of the company is Waste Repurposing International Inc., which is kind of the perfect supervillain name for a company. But that's <laughs> that's our corporate entity. Right? But it's its first market name um, was Smarter Sorting back, you know, in the dump when it literally sorted, you know, waste. Um, you know, this is waste. This is not waste, right? Um, and when we when we started getting more into data and big data and building data sets and algorithm engines, smarter sorting started to kind of fit less and less, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know what we you know if we asked people smarter sorting, what is that? They imagined like this octopus robot arm thing that like physically mm -hmm. sorted stuff. So it was a little bit odd from that name. But we got so many mistakes like smart source, smarter sourcing, smarter snorting actually had a hotel welcome the smarter snorting group um, to it. So we figured, okay, this is really bad. Um, so we rebranded to Smarter X because I think it gives us a broader umbrella. We have a lot of ambition around what we're going to be able to do with our data and the types of impact that we're going to be able to have. And so um, moving from Smarter Sorting to Smarter X, I think gives us a little bit more ability under that brand umbrella to do those types of things. So what's... Um you know, looking ahead, like what's next for the company? Lots of things. Um, you know, we're working on a few um, pilot projects right now um, with Chem Forward, who is a nonprofit that works on, you know, clean chemical replacements and understanding and assessing the chemical footprints that are out there. So, you know, partnering with them, um, you know, right now, you know, at a retail level, you know, the products that you sell, but you don't, know necessarily like what's in them at that level, right? So if I sell 50 products, how many pounds of aluminum does that mean that I sell, right? Like you don't necessarily have the data to put that together. You've got someone like Chem Forward who's got really fantastic data on what each of those chemicals are. And if they're like A, Bs or Cs or, or unrated, uh, we can marry that because we have the information about what's in the products at a retailer right, to help retailers understand what that footprint is, to be able to manage it towards things that are less toxic over time. So I'm I'm really excited about that work and our, our ability to help folks kind of measure the change that they're making and give them tools to do that. So that's one thing that we're working on. Um, another is, you know, just going back to my scar tissue about, you know, if you want to be a sustainable business, first, you actually need to be a sustainable business. So working on things internally to make sure that our efficiency is there, that our margins are there, 
And so we're finding lots and lots of ways to leverage kind of this new um, AI technology like ChatGPT, a number of other of these LLMs internally without exposing kind of data, you know, publicly, but to increase the efficiency and throughput of our system, which allows us to do, you know, more and more with more and more accuracy, even faster than we've been able to do it before. And so that's just going to set us up for scale. Um, in an amazing way. So excited about those changes internally. And then the third big thing is just our expansion. Uh, we are in massive growth mode. We're going to be announcing some retail partnerships later this year that I think are truly kind of needle moving from a, an impact perspective. Like we've, we're cresting out of that phase where, you know, our first customers, God love them. Like they were crazy. Like, I don't know why you would have in your right mind trusted your legal and regulatory compliance needs to a startup that maybe at times had like three months of cash left, right? Like <laughs> this was not, this was, this was a very risky move. Love them. Glad they did it. Right. But like now we're at the place where, you know, no one's going to get fired for bringing in SmartRx because we're a viable, efficacious company that other viable, efficacious companies work with. And so, you know, our, our trajectory is expanding. And so, you know, not only does that make us more valuable and increase our, our ARR as a company, but it increases our data set. And the more data we have, the more good we can do, the more we're going to really understand and be able to put a fine point on those externalities that we're pricing. The more data we have in our data set, the more powerful our tools are going to be to allow people to kind of manage out toxins over time. So... That is exciting. Well, you touched upon the AI element, which, you know, that's the platform shift that's everywhere. Everybody's talking about AI and generative AI and chat GPT. But, um, you know, there's a lot of good that's going to come along with AI. There's some stuff that hopefully doesn't end up being the bad stuff that no one wants to happen. But the the good, like, so with like climate change and, and, and the, you know, the lens that you are looking through uh, as it relates to really strong use cases of how AI can be applied. Like, what are your thoughts on, you know, this platform shift and what, what it can mean for, you know, environmental clean tech type of companies? I, it's going to do so much. Um, you know, one of the things that holds a lot of environmental clean tech companies back, especially kind of in the academic or the nonprofit space is funding, funding to do research you know, these tools will allow you to mine and put together data sets that haven't been connected before in a way that will allow you to find those conclusions kind of faster and more cost effectively. So that's one big game changer. The second is your ability to visualize data and change that comes from data. Uh, most people out there are visual learners. And so um, a lot of the concepts and things that people talk about are a little esoteric and it's tough to kind of look at spreadsheets and really understand the meaning behind it. Now that we're able to bring those things to life using technologies like this, I think it's going to be a lot more impactful. It's going to help people um, oh, become aware of the size of the challenge that's out there, but also the path forward for how you can make change in it. So things are going to get cheaper and faster. We're going to be able to appeal to different audiences and different stakeholder groups that, that haven't been able to, to do that before. And I think we're going to be able to see energy put into the things that are truly unique because all of the, the, the commodity stuff around the edge is going to be taken care of by technology that now we're going to be able to focus brain power on actually solving the problems in the middle. All right. So you've, uh, you know, ran your own company, you know, you moved into the CEO spot at SmarterX about a year ago, I believe. So mm -hmm. how did you learn how to lead? I don't know. I'm learning every day. It's, you know, 
I have four kids. And so that kind of makes me a, a natural leader. I'm allowed to kind of flex those, like, because I said <laughs> muscles. But no, I, early in my career, I had um, a fantastic experience. It was really shitty at the time, but like, I got to work with, you know, back to back, the best manager I've ever worked with in my career and the worst. Right. And being able to kind of compare and contrast what happened and, you know, like the guy that was the worst, I did learn some important things from him, some things that I do still do today, but also a lot of stuff that like I would never do. Right. Um, And then working with someone who really focused on, you know, my development and gave me enough rope to like to learn and do things, but not hang myself. Like those are some of the things that I learned early on that I've kind of kept with me as I've I've built my career um, as a leader. Like I'm big into kind of trust, but verify, like make sure you understand what it is that I need to have done and then go do it. And I care less about how you do it, but more that, you know, that it is done and that you have a rationale for how you approached it and you can communicate that rationale and that your results are sound. So I think those are things that, you know, my teams appreciate about working with me. The other, the other part I think of being, you know, a good leader is being decisive, right? Like, you know, analysis paralysis, this can and will kill you. Not deciding to do something um, is a decision, but when you sit there and you waffle and you waffle for too long, like often you miss the opportunity upside, you know, and downside. And so being able and and having the courage to make decisions sometimes with an incomplete data set uh, is really powerful. Um, And having the openness to kind of change and course correct when you need to, because you're not going to get it right every time. And you have to have no ego about that. You have to be like, yep, nope, that didn't work. Let's try this instead. Great, great advice. All right. So uh favorite fish to eat. Barramundi. Okay. Mm-hmm. Three apps you can't live without. You know, I saw this question on the list and I was like, all right, it's hard to pick just three, but I'm gonna go super nerdy for you. So one is Inkbird. Um, which runs this digital remote thermometer monitoring thing that I have on a tank that I have at home when I'm trying to raise and breed neocardinia shrimp, right? And they're really tough because they have a really narrow temperature band and the temperature in your house kind of whether like you like it or not swings. So Inkbird helps me monitor the temperature and then I have it chained so it turns on a fan so it cools the tank like when it reaches different things and then turns on a heater if it gets too low. So Inkbird is one of them. Okay. Um, Second one that I really love, um, Infinite Campus. So it lets me creepy stalk my kids. And so I'm familiar. Be like, Medio, uh, you got a lot of missings in Spanish. What's going on? Um, You know, and keep. Oh, but the teacher didn't didn't update the. the Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. (laughs) I turned it in, but she didn't get it. Uh huh. So should it I is, click this button and, dilemma, and send her a message? Should I? You know? Right. <laughs> so yeah. So that's another one that I love. And then uh, a third one that I'm loving is um Nick's Play. It's one of those like photo frame things that lets me upload photos to the grandparents. So my mom wakes up in the morning and she's got a she's got a one of these little Nick's Play frames by her coffee machine. And I always send new pictures. And so while she's having her morning coffee. Even though she's far away and it's getting tough for her to travel, she still feels connected to what's happening to my kids. And I put all kinds of random stuff on there. Like my daughter had a bike crash. I took a picture. So grandma got to see, but Hmm. yeah, those are my three. Very, very cool. All right. Podcast book recommendation. Um, Right now I am doing the Stanford summer 
reading list that they put out every year. Um, and mm. I am reading a book on humor in the in the workplace. Let me let me actually get the title of it because I'm gonna botch it, but it's it's been really great because I think, you know, it's a powerful thing. Like, you know, right now I'm starting to get platinum and so, you know, in my hair. And so I have a little bit more gravitas and people take me more seriously than I did like when I was younger. And um, what people learn is that business is serious business and they kind of take all of the humor about out of how they approach it. So the book is called uh, Humor Seriously. Um, really great book. But it's just about how to how to make it lighter, how your brain works differently um, when there's humor involved, how it allows you to connect to people in a different way than you might have before, how you can use humor to kind of take the edge off of, you know, tough messages that need to be delivered without kind of losing the message itself. Um, so it's a it's a great book that I highly recommend today. I'm going to check that out because I, I think it is a tough thing because it's like, oh, business is business and serious. Like. Uh, I need to weave in more just light hearted, fun humor, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just better. Like, and, and consumers gravitate towards that. So, uh, well, people so definitely... do too. I mean, like the charts yeah. in the book are just disturbing, right? Like when mm, you're four okay. years old, you, you laugh like 300 times a day, right? By the time you're in your thirties, you laugh 300 times every two and a half months. What? Right? Yeah. Terrible. It's crazy. And then, you know, back when you, you start cresting into your seventies and eighties and you like learn to just not give a fuck anymore, like people start really? laughing more again. And like, you know, hopefully they end their life back more by like, like as a four-year-old, but this whole like dip oh, in the middle, like that's got to go. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm definitely going to check that book out. All right. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? You're, you're busy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to say like, there's a really fine line between what I do outside of work and like what I like to do. So I have four kids, right. so that's, that's a lot of driving and a lot of activities. And so if yeah. you just observed me, you'd be like, man, she really loves driving to mountain bike practice. Um, but <laughs> what I actually enjoy doing outside of work is, you know, going for walks with my husband, um, through our neighborhood, there's some really amazing old landscaping, um, and just looking at like the flowers and the varietals that people have, they're just tough to find anymore. And just kind of, I don't know, I just love connecting with nature, even in those, those little ways. And, you know, I met a woman up the street um, a couple of weeks ago that, you know, had plants that she's had for like 80 years. And, you know, I was just geeking out over them and she, you know, showed up at my house. I don't know how she figured out where I live, but she showed up at my house like two hours later with like with part of one of her plants, she like decided to dig it out and give it to me. And so it's one of my favorites. That's in my, really sweet. In my little garden, but yeah. That's really cool. Well, JC, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Uh, obviously all the great work you've done as an entrepreneur and what you continue to do leading Smarter X and obviously all the great advice. Thanks. I appreciate being on here. Have a good one, Kate. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.